Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, Hannah Sward is an amazing story. She's more than 12 years sober. She had more than a decade of hardcore crystal meth use. And prior to that use, she was an escort. She was a stripper. Uh, her book is called Strip, and it chronicles her road to recovery, and it was a long and rocky one. This conversation is near and dear to my heart already. It was long, but it was based on recovery. We talk a lot of recovery because she speaks the same language as I do and hopefully the same language as you do right now. Or maybe if you need help or you know somebody that needs help, this can open your eyes. Hannah is informing and she's entertaining and she's way cool. But first, Kevin Souza. First thing I want to ask you, uh, how many how many meetings are you getting to? Because I need to, by the way, because I'm thinking I need a meeting. To, so I was like, I, I'm just going to be a, 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 an alcoholic and tell her. Yeah. Well, I love the way you just jump right in because that's what we do, right? Like, <laughs> let's get to it. I get, I'm, I'm someone that needs, I, I need a lot of meetings uh, in order to kind of be on level or mm-hmm. somewhere near there. So I have three anchor meetings that I go to, like three core meetings, and then I get to another couple meetings uh, that I kind of float around in. Uh, that's not full, true. I have four anchor meetings, and then the other two, I'm also in another program. So, uh, yeah. Are you yeah. cool to say what the other program is? Of course, it's Al-Anon. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I could use that yeah. too. I, I, I have, I'm from a family of alcoholics. Both my brothers are sober. One of them lives out by you in Hermosa. Uh, okay. And my other brother lives in, in Philadelphia, and they're both. It's the, I tell people it's the last club on earth we wanted to join, but here we are. Here we are. Well, oh, so you, yeah. That's, and where are you? I wasn't here I'm in Texas. That. I'm in Waco. So I'm right between Dallas and Austin. I've been here for about six years. Nicest people in Texas, I always think. They really are nice. Yeah, I, I, I like it. And it's like one of those things where I got here, and I'm not sure if I'm ever going to leave. I, I I like it more than I thought I would. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good feeling. Well, the biggest thing is, and see if you can relate. I, I travel yeah. around a lot for work. I still do. And the first place I went when I moved here, because I'm a because yeah. gr- I'm a big grown man. My mom helped me move, right? So my mom was was like detailing my apartment, and the first thing I did was I said I'm going to a meeting, and I went to a meeting, and that's been my home group for the past coming up on six years. And it's like being an alcoholic is pretty cool like that. I felt like you can plug right in. So cool. I feel so fortunate. I mean, you know, with the book tour, I was able to get to meetings and I mean, just, yeah, wherever and and whenever. And all of a sudden you have these people that are in your life and you could go, yeah, anywhere. Yeah. So the book is called Strip. And it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've, I've gone through it. And I, 
cannot believe that uh, you are able to, and I really can't believe this because I don't know what it's like. I mentioned you're able to access some of these difficult topics and go through them. And I heard, I heard you say that you couldn't actually write about some of the stuff, like some of the sex work, some of the, the, the meth and, and, and the stripping in your yeah. first couple drafts. It took you a little bit, and I love how you say you had to get further into recovery to get there. Well, wow. First, just thank you so much for, you know, I mean, you, you're you're clearly prepared. I've, <laughs> no one's ever really brought that up uh, in a podcast that, you know, with that knowledge. Yes, it definitely did. I It took me a long time to write the book because it really was a journey with my recovery. And the sex scenes, uh, I couldn't have done it sooner. I needed enough recovery, uh, outside therapy to come to a place in myself where I could, could go there and have the tools to anchor myself, to bring myself in, bring myself out and have a new experience with it while also trying to bring in the reader. Uh, and it was, was very intentional, uh, and, and I know in the earlier drafts, like I had an agent and he had said, you just gloss right over the sex. He said, and we had sex. And I'm like, mm, what's wrong with that? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we need a little more, a little more. Take us into the hotel room, you know, take us into, uh, you know, take us in bed, take us to bed. Yeah, that's, I, I even, when you say that, take a deep breath because it's just heavy, it's just heavy stuff. Um, and yeah. you know, you, in your childhood, you grow up and it's not only heavy, it's kind of empty. Your, your mom is not there. I, I've, I've heard you say, you know, you felt like you were in the crib, just reaching up and, and, and nothing was there. You, you weren't able to yeah. establish contact with anything. Describe a little bit what it was like. You grew up in a bohemian lifestyle, uh, but it was yeah. also a, somewhat empty as far as an emotional standpoint and parents are concerned. Yeah. I, I mean, it was definitely a colorful childhood. It was empty in the sense of, I mean, that de that description of being a baby and 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 reaching out and nothing like to hold on to, really encompasses it because it was like there was a, there was just no stability, which you know I think a lot of people can identify with that in different ways. Hopefully, the feeling. Uh, for me, that looked a lot like, you know, I had uh, my father was his first love was poetry. It was everything. And it was what I loved about him most. And it was also one of the one of the uh, challenges because he was always elsewhere. Right. And to to have a parent that is elsewhere, it, it, especially when it's your primary parent. And also he really loved women. Uh, he loved getting married and uh, moving around. And he's married, this is a guy who's married like five times, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah you are. Yeah. You are. <laughs> Come on, guys. Yeah, I'm very yeah. impressed. Yeah. Yeah, five, five times. And, uh, and, and a number of girlfriends uh, al along the way. And yeah, it, you know, we, we grew up, I grew up at one point on an island that had no cars or stores. And the house that we moved into was, well, like a little cottage, uh, had 
a furnace in there, but like a, a swing that if you swung in it, you just hit the furnace and it had a bathtub in the kitchen and then it had an outhouse inside the house. So I remember when the editors, you know, uh, emailed and said, you know, the wording's wrong here. An outhouse is supposed to be outside the house. And I'm like, well, for the sake of the reader, we can do that. But just, you know, but it was inside the house. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, well, that's too confusing. I said, okay. Uh, And then we moved to the States uh, from the, from the Algonquin Island uh, to a commune uh, up in the Santa Cruz mountains with the guru. And I went to school there for a while in a high school of 11. There was, I think there were 11 of us in the high school. In in Santa Cruz. Yeah. Wow. So Santa Cruz is sort of like a, well, it's like a, like a, like more of a a hippie area, I guess you would say. And did you experience some of that as, as a kid, like seeing your dad go through those, those sorts of experiences? Yeah. My dad was uh, definitely a hippie. Uh, definitely. It was very much into gurus and going to India and meditation was a really big part of my childhood and and yoga. And I I remember I had a meditation pillow and he had meditation retreats at the house. And I remember one time we were with a guru by the name of Baba Muktananda and that uh, was a big hall, right? A big meditation hall. And the microphone was being passed around. I was maybe six, seven. And, you know, people were asking questions like, what's the nature of being? Why are we here? The nature of happiness. And I just remember wanting to grab that microphone. Can I swear? Sure. Uh, and, and just wanted to say, fuck you, you know, to, to, to the whole thing. I, I, I had an aversion to it. So getting sober, that was a hurdle. The, the meditation aspect. You know, it's interesting you mentioned it. I, I've always thought I've gone through so many phases in my life with drugs, right? Like, so yeah. whatever drug I was on, you know, I was a, it was a hippie. I was into like, you know, all, all techno or whatever when I was doing ecstasy, like whatever. But, uh, and I always thought I had this, I romanticized about, about hippies, but getting sober and, and just, this is my experience, you know, hippies may be cool as shit, but not the best parents. Yeah. And so, and it seems like you had that part of your, part of your childhood. And, and I'm going to say this, I know you, you can go here because that's what you're doing in the book and talking to me, but I just got to say, like, it's tough for me to ask you these questions because I know it's like a tough, it's just a tough topic, yeah. you know? Um, and I'm not ter- terribly well versed on asking these kind of questions, but you're, you're six years old and you get mm-hmm. uh, abducted at a park and you get raped. And this is, is that in Santa Cruz? That was in Victoria, British Columbia, okay. uh, which is, uh, you know, known as like this picturesque, you know, uh, place with flowers, and and it is, yeah, and you uh, know, kind of an unlikely place, but these things, you know, there's no there's no time or place that they don't happen. Yeah, and you said right. that you, your your mother, or I guess at the time your stepmom. Was she was like yeah. a, upset with you when you because you I guess the police took you home and they said hey we got to find yeah. this guy and she was like what what's the deal? 
Yeah, yeah, she was. And I've tried to actually talk about it with her since, like maybe 10 years ago. Uh, in, in any case, yes, I was six and I was alone at the park. And, and it was a different time then. I think kids could go, I mean, maybe not yeah. off to a park. Yeah, themselves. but I would I would leave the house and we would just go off. And my parents would, we had this, we had this bell outside our house and we would, they would <laughs> ring the bell and we would come home. I mean, and I'm not, you know, from Civil War times, I'm not, I'm not that old, but that's, that's how it right. was. This is the yeah. mid-80s, mid, mid to late 80s, you know? That's what's going down. Yeah. I love that, a bell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I haven't thought about that in a while, yeah. But you're doing your thing and kind of you're able to walk off. And unfortunately, I mean, beyond unfortunately, you get swiped by this, by this person and he commits these, yeah. these sex acts. And, you know, how, how did that... I mean, I can't even imagine that experience, but what happens after that, the aftermath? You go to try to find the guy, and you, like you said, your stepmom's not happy. Yeah, well, you know, he told me over and over that if he ever, if I ever told anyone that, he would kill me. So, however, I was dropped back off at the park at some point, and my, uh, the neighbors actually found me. I think they brought me to the police station and we did drive around looking for, for the person. And my stepmom met us there. She was in art school at the time. So, uh, and she must've been in art class and yeah, she was very upset with me. And I think I really internalized that as I did something wrong, right? Like I got in that man's car, I did something wrong. The shame, uh, that it was my fault. So I think the whole processing of it too was another whole thing. We're not processing. And I just don't have a memory of my father being there. I always remember him as being in India at the time. And, and I did have, I started having nightmares and he was too at a time when it just wasn't, there wasn't as much awareness. I mean, there certainly wasn't anything like Amber alert or, I mean, even though it was the hippies and, you know, I'm sure, you know, therapy and stuff, it was just that consciousness was very different then. Uh, but I did have start having nightmares. And all I remember is being taken out of school and going, being brought to the hospital and having like, uh, being told to put, go to sleep and, and uh, you know, having a sticky stuff and wires out of my head. And, and then at some point the nightmare stopped. So I thought it must have been the, the glue and the wires that uh, that stopped the nightmares. So uh, you know, it's funny, and, and we're talking about obviously. You know, I'm not a doctor; I'm not no expert. I have my experience, but what I'm hearing is somebody going through some some hardcore trauma, and then you know, the age you and I grew, grew up in, we're around the same age. You didn't really talk about whatever was happening, so you're not talking about it. You're having outbursts, and then yeah. for me you know, you feel like an outsider. I mean, I had things that made me feel like an outsider, like learning disabilities or whatever. They'd send me to like the reading van to go. I just felt like I wasn't a part of, you know? Um, yeah. And it's yeah. like those things kind of can, can mount up. And then, I mean, nothing compared to what you went through, but it's all, it's all relative, right? You feel outside. And that's the, that's the addict part too. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate that you said that enough, like, cause I would do that. Just what you said. I'd be like, but other kids had it worse. Other kids were locked in a closet or a basement and they were, you know, beaten or like, and it would, I would really, that was, I guess, one of my coping mechanisms up until not too many years ago of, 
of not like not sitting with it, not not uh, dealing with it. And and you kind of you you have another experience with sexual trauma. Uh, yeah. As I guess, you, what happened the, the second time when you were young? You, you were still around the same age. I was uh, at nine at that point, still in Victoria, and I had a boy babysitter. And I and I had a little brother at that point, uh, two year old brother, who I I just you know I, I loved being a, a sister, an older sister, and and so this babysitter would babysit us and. He would have me play games. And I just remember being really fearful that something would happen to my little brother, of course, to myself as well, and telling my parents that I, I just don't like this babysitter. And not being heard because he kept coming back uh, until he moved away. And I, that's something I hear often in recovery, right? Is that, or I'll speak for myself, is not having a voice. And so that's a, that's a whole other aspect of it, right? Like how finding our voice, finding my voice, and and uh, when when it's been squashed down before. I mean, how, not well, I mean, you find you find your voice. You 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 speak up, and in recovery, yeah. at least, it feels good. And then you get yeah. filled up with the ability to cut through those nerves and having faith, and then you you have the ability to, to speak up again and again, you know, yeah. like, and that's for me, like, it's like, it's, I've built self-esteem by being, I was such, a, still am. I, I want to say such, such a people, am, am a people pleaser. Oh my God. Right. I mean, that's just, I, yeah. I, I was talking to my sponsor about that last week. I was like, how do I stop doing this? You know? And he was like, well, you're just not a finished product. You have to, I had, I had to call somebody and tell them that I was unable to, to go through with it, a commitment because something had come oh. up, something totally legitimate. And my sponsor said, whatever you do, when you talk to them and tell them that you canceled, don't say like you'll do whatever else you can to make up for it. And, and so I was like, yeah, you know, I, I can't do it. But whatever you need, you know, I'll do this and that. And it was like, I, I couldn't do it. I could not. It was hard enough to pick up the phone and, and, and get out of it, but I couldn't, right? Yeah. See, I love, I just love that. I mean, especially coming from a man, I don't hear as much talk of that. And I just love that. I mean, not love that you experience that because it's tough stuff, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm right there with you. I, I talk with the Swansea often about this, and and uh, and it's been one of the most helpful things is getting to take another woman right through that process, and then I, I and say, you know, my experience with that and how mm -hmm. I've been able to find my voice and, and use it, and um, specifically with the people pleasing. And um, and I would say to her, you know, like for me, it still feels like it when I when I speak up for myself, when I say I can't do or I'm not able to do that and not even given a, a reason. I feel like sending a bouquet of flowers, yeah. like, you know, like, like but I'm so sorry. You know? Yes. Yeah. What the hell is wrong with us? You know, I guess we're, you know, we're just go, we're just going through it and we're not. And and and. Literally, like like my sponsor told me, and like you know, I kind of hear you. We're not finished products, and and that's okay, because yeah. we're talking to people about what we're doing, and you know, we're sharing these experiences, like I am with you here. Now, we talked about your, you know, your trauma, and that kind of sets the table for, for lack of a better term, you, your your addiction and your use, which doesn't really. It's sort of like a 
slow burn. Yeah. You you end up now. Yeah. Do you have any alcoholism or drug addiction in your family? Uh, my half sister is also in the program. Oh, you t- you talk a ton about her. She's like your soulmate almost, right? She's she's act- actually I don't my since my father was married five times. I have six other brothers and sisters. Okay. I so this is a different one. Yeah, this is a different one, okay. and, and I focus on my other sister because it became too many characters in the book. Yeah, yeah, it, that, it was yeah. like well, yeah. I didn't want to write like a five hundred page novel. Yeah, or book. So but, you do, uh, you got a little bit going on in the bloodstream, possibly. Yeah, but, but yeah, I found out. You know, as I think many of us do, like I, the more I kind of dig, for sure, I'm like oh, yeah. my grandma, yeah. You know, like pills, apparently, kind of. And, you know, I I'm certainly think like in another form, my mom had a, you know, perhaps a sex and love addiction. Uh, yeah. And oh, filling, uh, filling that hole with what with whatever. It's funny you mentioned we discover the stuff. It's not usually a, you know, our family doesn't lead with that. You know, it's not a headline that, that we have. Here's your, you know, here's your, yeah. you know, whatever addicted a person X, Y, and Z. My mom eventually did when we started to drink a lot, she would share with us, Hey, your father and his family, they've got this thing going on and, and you guys need yeah. to watch it. But it was kind of, I, I learned the more I got sober, the more I learned about it. Now with, with you, you said, yeah. you, you're more, I, I guess I, I learned the first time you, you did acid, you were like 17 or 18. Uh, and it was to impress. Yeah, it, was in, it was to impress a guy. Uh, yeah, it was, it was. Yeah, in high school, probably sixteen, in guitar class, and uh, yeah, he wanted to drop acid, and I had you know never done that before. And I thought, well, okay, that'll look really cool, and that will yeah impress him. And it didn't. Uh, he <laughs> chose, he chose my best friend instead. <laughs> well, that was a waste, <laughs> and I didn't get a good grade. Uh, yeah. Well, how about drinking? Yeah. Were you drinking during these like formative years? And I know it becomes yeah. a big part of your story down the line, but early on, I didn't, I didn't hear you mention it too much. Yeah, I didn't. I was, and it's funny to think like when I, like when I think of, I, I don't never consider myself a good student, but I always forget, like I, it was important for me to be like in the girls honor society and, and things like that, because I wanted to get good grades and, that route because my father was an intellectual and was a you know professor and it was that that was that was some something there about doing well in school uh I remember one time getting drunk uh in high school it was at a party and all I remember is that red cheap wine out of the carton and not being able to stop and and ending up in the restroom and just you know not like getting sick with that, you know, red wine everywhere. So there was that binge quality. There was the binge quality. I wouldn't even call it quality. I binged right from the get go. Uh, However, drinking didn't, wasn't a thing until I was 36. But then this is after like almost a decade, right, of, of using crystal meth. And so after after high school, do you, do you go right to do you go right to California? What do you do after, or do you go to Chicago? I was really homesick for Canada. 
So I graduated high school early, which wasn't too hard to do because the school years were a lot easier. And I went straight back to Toronto. And uh, I spent some time there. And then I wanted to go back to school. So I went to Montreal uh, to study religion, of all things. <laughs> and I, I, <laughs> I didn't realize it was a religious department. Like I thought it was, I wanted to study religion, <laughs> not not be religious. Yeah, like you want to study theology, not become a nun. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh, what? Huh. <laughs> so, and I was just really lost there. And I just remember walking the streets at night. I was so lost, Pete, just completely bewildered. You know, I had this fantasy of learning French, being a French girl, and uh, just leading this interesting life. And, I just remember I had this little apartment and all these little cockroaches would come out at night and I would leave and just walk the streets looking for Leonard Cohen because I, you know, had that, you know, schoolgirl crush on, on Leonard Cohen. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure why I thought I would run into him in the, in the middle of the night. Was the he, he, was, but, he uh, was in Montreal, though? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Or at least I, I thought he was, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so that 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 situation is playing out, and again, it goes back to, and, and whether you have it in your your bloodstream or whether you have trauma or you have that like emptiness, right? Like like you know, yeah. no mom around when you were younger. There's something going on here, and then you you go from Montreal, and and then I guess you you kind of reunite with your sister at some point, who was like your best friend, and you felt like when you and her were together, you'd be you'd be great. Yeah. Well, I would spend summers every summer with my uh, with my mom, although I don't remember her around particularly. She was, like I said, really into her men and her own thing. Uh, however, my little sister and I were, I mean, we tried to glue our hands together. And when I would leave to go back to Canada every summer at the end of the summer, she would gr like grab onto my ankle and just scream as if I was like leaving to go to war or something. And uh, so our plan was always that as soon as we graduated high school, there's a three year difference between us, we would meet in LA. That was always our plan. And uh, so I had, a, I had a few years because I'm her older sister to kind of wait for her. So from Montreal, I went, I, uh, my mom called, I called my mom from a phone booth one day. Uh, and I mean, young people kind of know what a phone booth is, right? Yeah, uh, oh, it's funny. Yeah. yeah, an outdoor phone in a box. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's the middle of winter in Montreal, right? Yeah. It's freezing. And I called my mom and I'm crying. Because one thing she was, she was good in coming through in, in emergencies. And I told her, like, you know, I'm not going to class. Like, I'm just, you know, my boyfriend had gone to Hawaii or kind of my, my kind of boy, boyfriend at the time. And uh, and she's like, well, come to Florida. I said, I can't because Harry just bought me a fridge and I can't leave the fridge. And she said, she said, fuck the fridge. I'm sending you a ticket. You're coming back to Florida tomorrow. <laughs> so I left everything and I went to Florida. <laughs> Hey there, homeowners. Is it time to give your yard a complete makeover this summer? Villani Landshapers, a local family-owned business, has been transforming landscapes for more than 20 years. 
Villani Landshapers specializes in landscape design build, retaining walls, outdoor living spaces, and so much more. Request your free consultation today and check out their gallery of residential work at villani-landshapers.com. From the host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room, Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins is a propulsive and vivid memoir about the journey to sobriety and self-love amidst addiction, privilege, racism, and self-sabotage. Best-selling author Holly Whitaker calls it an irresistibly delicious story. And MacArthur Foundation fellow and best-selling author Kiese Lehman says Stash is emotionally riveting. Buy Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins now, wherever books are sold. Welcome to One Star Rewind, a new podcast about those dreaded one-star reviews that every business owner hates to receive, but yet every customer loves to read. During this podcast, we will peel back that one-star review to better understand how it happened, when it happened, and what the business owner is doing after receiving that one-star review. This podcast will be about love, hate, and laughter. On One Star Rewind, we will meet with real business owners who will tell their stories and how they do rely on reviews for their business. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or download us at roguemedianetwork.com. Please subscribe, but only rate and review for not a one-star review. Join us each time for a new review and a new story. Frozen, Frozen, heroes. Gonna tell you about Frozen, Frozen, heroes. Gonna tell you about. Hey, I'm Zach. And I'm Mike. And we have a fantastic new podcast to tell you about. Bros, foes, and heroes. It's the two of us looking into the world of comics, breaking down some characters that you may have never heard of, and some that are just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, so Zach comes up with a character each time, and uh, I go into it just completely blind. I don't know who this person is or what their abilities are or anything, and and basically I guess we kind of go over their origin story. And just some of the ridiculous stuff that maybe, especially Golden Age stuff. Oh, Golden yeah. Age stuff is always the best. And we will make sure to highlight all of the shenanigans and just absolute weirdness yeah. of everything. Yeah, that's right. So subscribe today and uh, follow us on Instagram at Bros Bros Heroes. And if you don't, I know where you live. Not really, but please subscribe. <laughs> Bros and Bros and Heroes. Um, what are we doing here, Rusty? What are we gonna do? Uh, yep, we're doing the uh, King of the Hill rewatch podcast. King of the Hill yes, rewatch podcast. Yeah, so we're gonna go through one episode at a time. Uh, come along for the ride with us. Come check it out. And give me give me a good um, like Dale Gribble quote to go out on. Wingo, yeah, Wingo, <laughs> Wingo, Wingo. All right, well join us uh, join us for uh, the uh, King of the Hill rewatch podcast. Nine one one, what's your emergency? Do you hear that? It's coming from the house. It's coming from inside the house. Uh, do you mean? Could it be? The Poltergeist. New from Rogue Media, two haunted hotties talking about haunted places. Every episode, we dive deep into the darkest places 
and give you a bit of history. We're getting spooky in all the right places. You've gobbled your last ghoul. Follow along for the craziest and spookiest stories with Debbie's Dark Tourism. The Stanley Hotel, Winchester House, The Alamo, Hotel Monte Vista, and more spooky places. Find us at the underscore Poltergals. P-O-L-T-E-R-G-A-L-S. Look over your shoulder. It's us, the Poltergals. Wherever you consume the podcast, you can find us there. Your mom, by the way, was pretty... She was... Look... She seems like she was empowered. I mean, she she would talk about relationships with men. I think it's worth noting. I mean, there's a year where she had sex with a hundred men. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So she was. She didn't really give a fuck. It sounds like. No. Yeah. No, she didn't. She didn't. She would tell me like, "Oh yeah, that was a great year." It was I was not supposed to say his name, but some baseball player, and she's like, "And his friend, you know." Oh, I'm dying to know the name. I know you can't say it, but I'm dying. I'll tell you after. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, you'll have to tell me. So you go to Florida and then I know you go to, you start ending up in this, this, the, the sex industry when you get yeah. to Chicago, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. cause and that story is great. I mean, it's not great, but I can yeah. so relate as, I don't know whether it's, you know, I have certain things that I like to do and that I'm good at. Um, yeah. there's a lot of stuff I'm terrible at. And, and there's also even like some of like the re- jobs people will call remedial, like I got a job at KFC when I was in a halfway house and I was terrible at that. I mean, I got better, but yeah. you talk about <laughs> your, you talk about you're working at a place that's kind of like a 24 hour fitness and you're like, oh. fuck this, you know? Yeah. You had to be yeah. there at 6am and you were like, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. I end up, exactly. I ended up in Chicago for, uh, a short for a period of time I said my uh, friend was filming a movie there and we were both like you know she's like I'm really lonely and I'm in this huge apartment you know like and I was like well I'll come you know so I thought okay I have a you know I, I got yeah I got a job at 24 fitness and it was like that you know blue spandex and that like white polyester shirt buttoned up and uh and it was like some 5 a.m. shift and I get there and I'm standing there in that outfit. And I'm like, well, I think I lasted like three hours. And I'm like, I just can't do this. Like, I, I can't do this. I can't stand here in this spandex for and get paid minimum wage. How am I going to like, I can't make money for college this way. And just went home. And, uh, and I just remember looking through the Chicago Tribune and, eating a can of tuna and look, you know, looking in the classified section for, for other jobs. And I saw an ad that said make 300 an hour. And I, you know, I remember throwing the can of tuna out, getting another can, sitting back down. I'm not sure why the tuna stands out, but I remember the tuna with the Chicago Tribune <laughs> and the ad and it said, you know, and I called the number and, uh, and, I think it was that night that I took the I took the train out to some strange part of Chicago and met a man at an Italian restaurant and talked about uh I don't remember what we talked about but he had garlic bread and and I started working for him. Yeah. And, and that's that that 
really kicks off. See, because person, your life's been chaos, uh, yeah. from what I can tell up until this yeah. point. But now, like you're actively involved in the chaos per se. Like, you, and and yeah. I, and and you talk about this. You didn't. You know, a lot of people are like, "Hey, I got into stripping or or being an escort because of because I was on drugs." Like, that's not your story. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I was doing a panel uh, a number of months ago in Chicago. It was really interesting. Uh, and one of the audience members asked that. He's like, well, uh, you you were fueled by your drugs to do to be in that industry. And I, I, there was no point where that was the case. And I'd like to blame on that. Like, oh, I was high and drunk, but I wasn't. I was... I was very sober. I mean, sober, not emotionally sober, yeah. but physically. Well, clearly, except that's for one time right. doing coke with a couple. Uh, oh, yeah, did, did that, you like it? No, I didn't. I it was my first time ever doing coke. I was nineteen. Was Chicago? I was called to be to go see this couple, uh, and they had like satin sheets and the coke. I mean, just like straight out of a movie. Yeah. You know, I'm getting like a big smile. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Like play lavender satin. That whole. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it was terrible. It was just terrible. I remember going back to the apartment where I lived with my friend and it was right downtown. And it was like one of those really uh, high rise. It was 24th floor. And I just, I wanted to jump out. That's all I remember about it. I wanted to jump out the window. So you're talking, we're talking about like higher end clientele. I mean, pretty much for the, for the most part, when you're doing this, that's what I gleaned from, from your book. That I wish that were the case. I, once I got to LA, it was, but in Chicago, my standards, I mean, I was with, it was like a dumpy apartment where I would go, uh, you know, to, to work. And it was like this, uh, velour zebra like and a like aqua couch the girls and i would sit on eating bologna sandwiches waiting for like you know to be to fit some man's description and i think it was i mean i don't know if that's a lot at that time but i don't think so i mean it felt like a lot to me versus minimum wage but i think it was like two or three hundred an hour okay and then you know the let's say the pimp it didn't really feel like a pimp but that was what he was you know get some of it and and the driver gets some of it so you know like uncle sam once he's done with you it's like hey well, you know it's not it's not everything i thought right yeah and i, and I yeah. wasn't like i wasn't a savvy call girl i mean i had no game right like i, I was terrible at it like the first man i ever had or had or the first man i ever went to i think he wanted me to talk dirty to you know to him and you know, I'm 19, I'm standing there and Mr. Sam is like, you know, you need to look like you're you're doing this a while. And I'm like, okay. And the guy wants me to talk dirty to him. And I just breeze up. Like, I just can't. I'm just I, like, I can't get the words out. I got better later, but. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, you know, you need to go with a higher class service. And he named some famous people that he couldn't you know, connect me with. And, and I just didn't. You know, I didn't even jump on that. Instead, we went for donuts. Like, he's like, let's go out for donuts. So he's a good guy. 
Yeah, he was a good guy. I mean, yeah. he never called for me again, which was fine. But we went out for donuts. He paid, and he said, "You need to be with a different, you know, agency." <laughs> so you you're going through all this, and then you're still you're not using drugs. I mean, aside from the occasional, you know, you mentioned yeah. doing coke, and then this is this only lasts for a couple months, and then I guess you're, yeah. you kind of reunite with your sister, and you guys end yeah. up stripping together. Um, in California, because yeah. you want to be act, you, you get in that world, right? You want to be actors, and then what happens? Yeah. We, uh, yeah, I moved to LA at, uh, when I was 24, and she was 21, uh, and cause it took me a little while to get here, because uh-huh. uh, I had some detours along the way. And when I got here, you know, I had no money, it was, and I, I'm hesitant to say I had no money because a lot of people have no money and they don't choose to go work for Madame Ava. Right. So it's like, I don't want to blame it on that. And I don't, that's not my intention. That is the path I chose. Like I I went back to uh, prostitution as soon as I came back to LA. I worked for Madame Ava for a little while. And then I stepped up and I started stripping with my sister. So it was like a step up because it was, you know, I was no longer selling myself in that particular way. And when you guys start to strip and then you start to do meth, is that your first experience where the woman says, you know, you do meth and to lose weight? Yeah. Wow. You are, you yeah. are really, and it didn't take. this is unusual. You are yeah. good. Yeah. And it You're didn't, good Pete. Well, it didn't take, right? You do the meth for 30 days. It's like they, we say in the rooms, we'll give you 30 days and refund your misery. Well, you do it for 30 days. You don't lose any weight and you say, well, forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, it's, I mean, I had no clue because we were bad moods. We were clumsy on stage. We didn't lose weight. Yeah. And, uh, however, I will never forget that first time crushing those lines on the Formica table in our black kitchen, like the yellow Formica crushing those lines. And I just remember telling my sister, you go make the beds. I'll be in charge of this. And she's like, fine. And it just, it didn't have the same effect on her. But even before I ever did my first line of meth, that ritual, I was all in. Yes, and that's the thing. Like you see like there's a control aspect. You're into the ritual because it's just like such an environment. Your sister's, I guess, not an addict, right? So she can kind of whatever. I mean, she goes through binges and benders, but we're a different breed. Yeah, and, yeah, and, the poor thing didn't become one of us. Yeah, and, and, and you do this for your poor thing. When you do this for, you know, about a month stretch, and then you, you kind of get back out there, and you end up, you end up escorting again. Like in your, and, and it's like so, extremely high clientele now, right? Yeah, at that point, it is high clientele. Uh, I still wasn't particularly savvy, but it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was voting to the peninsula for or for people who are not in LA, it's comparable to like, you know, Beverly Hills Hotel, uh, Beverly Hills, yeah, hotel, uh, you know, in Bel Air, uh, yeah, definitely high higher clientele, and and, you- and enough so that you know you, got, you need to, uh, Madame Ava lent me some money to go get a nice black suit, you know, no more, uh, like in Chicago, I was wearing you know, $10 cotton bright purple mini dresses, you know, that hardly covered myself. Yeah. And that was definitely not, <laughs> you need to be in a crisp pencil suit. Would, would you um, go out with these guys? Like, like go to like big events and stuff like that? 
No, it was always in, it was always, uh, I mean, some of them wanted to, I, the hardest part would be the, uh, would be the talking and would be going out. So that was, I just couldn't do it. And it's like, I couldn't fake the talk. Yeah. I couldn't fake the talk, but I could bend over. <laughs> I mean, that's, I get it. Well, it's, 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 it's sometimes the talk is more exhausting. I mean, I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes, but when you, yeah. I, I, I would imagine that makes it just more real. Like I'm so disconnected to this person right now, you know, yeah. kind of almost punctuates, you know, exactly what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Just like with stripping. I mean, it, it's rare, or at least in my experience to have to talk to any stripper that I had worked with, uh, where, the worst part was when the men wanted to talk. Yeah. You said and some you said some of the guys were, were, were shitty guys. Some of the guys were good guys, like you mentioned. The one thing that jumps out of me and you you said there's you're watching the Oscars once and a guy who yeah. you'd been involved with who wasn't so cool was up there getting no. getting an award. And you're like, Wow. And you said that, that that was a real like your stomach almost turned over. Yeah. Even as you say it right now, I feel sick. I mean that's God, I still have that feeling, but yeah, it was like he, uh, yeah, he was not a savory character, and that was in probably one of the most upscale hotels. Uh, and he did not pay. Uh, I wasn't good at getting, getting in and counting the money up front. I was just, like embarrassed to kind of count the money, which is insane. I mean, you don't go to Seven Eleven and you know. <laughs> You know, get a get a hot dog and like you know, so you're giving yourself over, and you're not. I'm not counting the money. Yeah, Um, I I get it. I I mean, I just like it's one of those things where you just kind of want to act like it didn't happen or whatever. I could I could see why why that why that would go down. Plus, I'm terrible at math, so I'd probably be better. You know, Um, so right. I mean, it's kind of like all that stuff uh, into one. Oh yeah. And it's people pleasing. I would just like be yes. embarrassed. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, this is good. This is good. I know. You know. So you you end up the, right. one of the things. Fast forward a little bit, and this is where the meth really takes off because this podcast yeah. is all about addiction and your story is is so interesting. But it is yeah. like the more I, I, I deep dove, you're all about recovery. But your addiction takes off when this dude walks in to uh, what is it a california pizza kitchen or a california california chicken yeah california chicken and he's got all the tattoos on and he he's just you're attracted to this guy yeah at that point i was probably 28 my sister had gotten married and we had been so enmeshed in our lives just you know i relied on her she was my everything and and like i didn't exist within myself without her right and when she got married and moved to New York, I, I fell apart. It was, I really think it was a nervous breakdown, although it wasn't technically called that. And when they talk about in the program, the solution, I get that because my solution was drugs. And when I saw this guy at, at um, California Chicken, as soon as he walked in, it was like, just, I knew it was trouble. And you know, fresh, I mean, he looked like he was fresh out of prison. And I don't even recall being attracted to those kind of guys before. So it was, even when I think about it now, it's kind of strange. I'm like, it's not, yeah. Uh, anyway, I was in a really wrong, like really wrong, really raw place. And I guess I just, anyway, whatever I was, yeah. So he, 
he gave me his croutons or something. And then I followed him into what actually what was an AA meeting across the street. And that was the first meeting I ever went to in my life. No uh, kidding. And so what, and so what happens after that? I remember sitting with a big meeting. I remember, and he walked in there. So I had followed him in. That's what, actually what, that's what happened. It was right across the street and I followed him and I sat in the back and I just sobbed. Like I knew instinctively that it was a place that I, that was okay to not be okay. I didn't go back for 10 years. It planted the seed though. Yeah. And on the break, we connected while he was, you know, we connected. <laughs> we didn't connect, but you know. Yeah, sure. We talked. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he was, uh, he at the time was staying at Beit Shuba with who is a, it's a Jewish rehab, which I actually spoke at last Wednesday night and I hadn't been back there since. Oh, shit. Yeah, it was that was like 20 years ago. And I, I went back last week uh, for a new experience, right? Yeah. Uh, but I, I rescued him from that rehab and we put all his stuff in my car, you know, which was consisted mainly of like garbage bags full of like one of the chapters in the book is called Dope and Bald Pussies because he had all these, you know, ca- uh, video cassettes of it was just that's all he owned, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like video cassettes of like, you know, porn uh specifically you know the title i just said but um and we went to seaway motel which is still there to this day and fortunately he went he got uh he went back to prison because that was the deal that if he didn't uh stay at that place he'd go to prison and i took his contacts and i was off and running so that really that marked the beginning of the the end of of a bottom that lasts like ten years, yeah. And so, and and you're now you're running and gunning and 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 describe yeah. if you can your addiction to to meth. What? How did it make you feel? Uh, yeah. How much did you like it, or did you just do it because you needed to do it? I well, I mean, I did like the ritual. I it. I didn't like, I didn't like it though. Like that to me is the terror of this disease is that right from the beginning, like it, it wasn't a party. And I remember, you know, like at first it was a summer and I'm like, I'm in my twenties, a summer of meth doesn't seem, you know, it's not completely, it's okay. And then it's like six months and then it's a year and then it's five years. And so you nailed it when you said that it was a bottom. It was all a bottom. And what it looked like for me was, I mean, certainly the lying, the stealing, uh, but the complete, that, you know, incomprehensible demoralization. Doing things that perpetuated that self-hatred. Yeah. You know, and live like, I was a real bathroom girl. I loved that isolation of bathrooms. All like, I know, I'm not trying to brag here, but I know all the good bathrooms, like from, you know, East LA to the beach. Because you'd stop uh, in there and you'd, you'd, you'd snort meth and then you just yeah. keep snorting meth in the bathrooms. Is that right? Yeah. 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 It basically became everything is interesting. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I was a big, I, I, I was a big cocaine guy and a huge Adderall. There was not enough Adderall. 
I mean, it was just, I mean, I, I would take, you know, you could kill a horse. I was taking so much and because your tolerance gets up there. And I remember a girl yeah. I was dating went overseas and she sent me this tube of 600, uh, pills of 10 milligram Adderall's and, and I, and I was, you know, yeah, exactly. I was like, a, You're a good picker, Pete. yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> People pleasers. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it, I was hearing voices. I wasn't sleeping. I mean, it was just a long run. And then when that's out, you, you continue to fill that void. And I, so I, I get what you're saying. There's, there's a moment in your addiction as we get closer to when you got sober, where you're dating this guy, one, the dude, yeah. you guys live in echo park. And the guy yeah. doesn't know that you're using meth, but you're using meth all the time. And yeah. you have, uh, you, you really are attracted to plants, uh, and gardening. Right. So this dude goes to work, right? He's working at a flower shop and you are in this brush. Like, and I, I heard you say it all day and, and you, day. you mean all day, you know? Day. Yeah. Like what's, yeah. what's that experience? Like what's happening there? Well, yeah, he would go off to work and I just remember so suspicious, like peeing in my little night, night, you know, see-through nightgown, like kind of, you know, it's like the angelic white nightgown and I'm the, you know, and, and it's like, I have no shoes on, no, no gloves, no, you know, proper attire to garden. And I just like, I'm going to go back inside to not use. That was my goal every day. Like, don't use. And, and I just remember like, you know, picking one branch of bougainvillea and bougainvilleas for those who don't know have thorns. They're a really thorny bush. Uh, and I would pick one and it became so interesting. Right. And then I'd be like, Oh, that looks better. And then I'd pick another one and then another one. So it's comparable to like picking your face. Right. It was just that tunnel of, of kind of just be completely tangled in those bushes all day. And I, you know, with that dry mouth, having to pee, you know, seeing that I'm getting completely torn up, right? And and not feeling well after not having slept a few days, somewhat delirium, of course dehydrated and remember this neighbor came it was the only time someone ever called me out and she brought me some lemonade and uh she said are you using drugs and I was so appalled like I was just like I just love gardening like how dare you and you know I drank the lemonade uh well, you yeah so it. What's that? You needed it with the dry. I can feel <laughs> I've been there, the dry mouth. And it's like, you literally need someone to come and like keep and you alive. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like here's yeah. what you need. You need to take this in. And uh, that, yeah. that, that whole, I've heard you tell that story and, and I, I am like right there with you. It's one of those things where it's like, Oh my God, where's the time gone? When I started this, I was feeling good. I was like high and I was so into this. And now I'm like, what is, what's happening? And for me at that yeah. point, I was like, I, I need a drink. Uh, but for you, yeah. like alcohol wasn't a huge part of the equation at that point. No, not at that point. No. And uh, yeah. And, and I mean, those kinds of, yeah. And gardening, I mean, just these things that became very interesting that like I've never gardened since. 
you know, uh, <laughs> I have some plants I'm trying to keep alive in my apartment, but that's about it. Uh, yeah, my disease, it was just what you said, those hours, the time, the days turned into months, into years, and I'm taking apart. I mean, I was a real big, I mean, I was a tweaker, uh, and I loved Home Depot, and especially the nail aisle, like, I was always at Home Depot. I loved it, you know, like, the doorknobs were just fascinating, and you would take apart doorknobs. Oh, so interesting. So would, you, would you be able to put them back together? Not really. <laughs> There's nothing worse when you start a project like that and you're you're high and then you look like you're like, oh boy, like where am I going to go with that, right? Somebody's coming yeah. home, I have to explain that to them. Yeah, yeah. yeah when my boyfriend at the time in Echo Park came home, I was like, I'm like, this is, I know how to do door dumpsters. It's so interesting. He's like, well, can you put it together? I'm like, <laughs> Tomorrow, maybe. How did you, how did this, you mentioned this is, or, or we talked about it, it's like a 10-year bottom. How did you get at it? Like, like when did you break? When was your last day on meth? And, and you yeah. were like, I, 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 what, what happened? You know, this is the thing, right? And I, we, I often hear this from other people too. Like, I don't know why one day was so different than the other because it was all that terror, all that, again, that gripping demoralization and all the promises to myself. Like when my dealer would go to jail and I'd be like, okay, this time I, I guess I'm getting sober. Like I would call that right? like sober. Yeah. Until the, as soon as the person called. Uh, and it was the, uh, my, my bottom, although like I said, again, it was all a bottom, the last day of meth was in the Bougainvilleas. And I had moved out of where I was living with my boyfriend at the time into this little studio or yeah, studio apartment. And it had a backyard, all Bougainvilleas. Oh, jackpot. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this is, I'm gonna live here. <laughs> this, this is paradise. And it was actually, it was a really beautiful place. <laughs> and, uh, and that particular day, I was just just like many others, you know, in the bushes. And it got to the point where the sun was going down. I dragged myself into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror. And it sounds so corny because it's like, you know, all of this, all these years. And then I looked in the mirror and I saw the light and I got sober. And it, I don't mean it like that at all. It, However, it, it, like I looked in the mirror and, you know, just said, I couldn't look at myself in the eye, right? I mean, I hadn't been able to look at myself in the eye for for decades, for years, uh, but it looked like I had been attacked in the jungle, like up and down my arms, where it's like, were just streaked with blood and, uh, you know, scrapes from the thorns and up and down my legs. And I think I just kind of collapsed on the bathroom floor, the pink tile, I remember the pink tile and, that was that was the end of of meth and how did you stop i I mean cold turkey or yeah yeah however what happened and i think this is i didn't used to share this too much uh because sometimes i would i speak at uh you know cma meetings uh or you know crystal meth program 12-step program 
especially here in West Hollywood, because there's not that many girls. Or actually, there's, anyway, that's a separate yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. However, <laughs> um, but I think it's important to share because I never considered myself an alcoholic. I thought, well, I'm an addict. And at, at, the, at that point, I was 36. I could never really finish a glass of wine. I mean, except for that high school incident in one one merit one uh wedding i attended in long island like those were the two times like i you know got drunk uh i started to drink and i even remember my friend saying wow this is so cool you're having a glass of wine with us and i'm like isn't it like i'm you're like yeah you're so adult like this is really nice i'm like it is i like this this is did you you find yourself using alcohol as like a vehicle to integrate more into society, at least, at least for a little bit. That's a no. Just, I think it was, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was, yeah. you know, it, uh, yeah, not, I mean, it, it, I guess it helped in a sense. Like I was oddly enough working at a law school at the time. And so it, it helped me be a little more outgoing. Were you drinking with, during the day and stuff? What's that? Were you drinking like during the day and stuff and going to work yeah. and yeah. Yeah. So it so quickly became apparent to me. And that was the, that was the most frightening part was I saw that it was just replacing the meth. And that. It's scary, scary to hear you say that because we just talked about the meth and that was a terrifying and exhausting. And now here you are. And it's like, same, same thing. You yeah, know, same, same thing, same and shit, so that different lasted- day. Same shit, different day, pretty much. Yeah. And yeah, and 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 you start when you start to, I guess, you get to a place where you're seeing a therapist. You've been seeing a therapist the whole time, and uh, the yeah. bathroom stuff. I was in CVS yesterday. I thought of you because, <laughs> yeah, hey. no problem. <laughs> Yeah. May you always, may you always think of me as you. No, no, no. Why, for, Hannah? For people who don't know, why did I think of you when I was in CVS? I loved CVS. Like I said, I loved bathrooms. CVS was across the street from my therapist at the time in Beverly Hills. It's still there. And before therapy, you know, it's twelve o'clock. That's a long time. I need a drink to before therapy because therapy. It's difficult you know, take the, <laughs> take the take the edge off, and uh, so you know, it's, I'd take a bottle of wine or or champagne. I was a big thief. I, I never liked to pay for anything, so I took that into the CVS bathroom, and I would, uh, yeah, drink part of it and stick it in that like trash can and put you know paper towels over it and promise myself I wouldn't come back for it later, and. Uh, and I'd go to therapy. And so that CBS bathroom was, uh, you know, to this day, it's so odd to go. I mean, I don't n- normally go to the restroom in CBS anymore. <laughs> it's not <laughs> really necessary. But to this day, going into any any restroom. Any public uh, restroom. Yeah. I, it's like I survey it. And I'm like, this is a good one. Yeah. This well, is- that stuff, that's the disease. It never leaves us totally. I mean, I you know, cliche or what the obsession is lifted. I don't think about, and it took a little bit, right? I mean, my first, I went to rehab. I lived in a halfway house. I was like institutionalized for a while, you know? And, and I, and I had to, you know, there was a lot of urges early on, you know? And, 
that I don't have those anymore, but I still have the mind where I'll still see something and be like, well, I would if I ever walk into a steakhouse bathroom, I'm like, this would be perfect. You know, like that's uh-huh. like, I could, I could, I could move in here, you know, and just, and just do, do cocaine all the time and go back out for a glass of red wine every so often and then just come back. I mean, that's really a nice steakhouse or a, a nice one. Yeah. Or, or a city yeah. one, anyone where the doors close, you know, and, and that, like the big wooden doors, like a Capitol grill, like forget about it. I'll pay my rent there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right there with you. Yeah. Right there with you. Or, yeah. So, yeah. so you're going to the CVS and then the, the, the magic per se starts to happen when you walk in and to see your therapist yeah. one day. Yeah. And I, you know, I had always been, uh, in therapy this whole time uh, over the years, seeking something and some kind of, of help and something, uh, some kind of anchor, right? And and I was specific and especially attracted to, not attracted by the, to, not in a physical way, but to, you know, older women therapists that kind of were that mother figure. And this particular therapist really was that. She was just the most kind woman like just so gentle it was just I really loved her I hadn't been working with her long and I just remember that day like I was sitting there and you know just this like earthy woman right with her you know painted toenails and her you know sitting like just I mean earthy painted toenails don't go together but just something about her was <laughs> yeah well and it's, it's almost seems for us at that point in time man or woman it feels like that is unattainable for us she's so put together she's so attractive she's so inside and out you're like i could never be this yeah, that's my experience exactly. with stuff like that yeah yeah she's a woman that can sit with herself that's what i saw and that is what i had always wanted right always that looked like wow if I could be someone that could sit with themselves, that's the dream. And it was unattainable to me, or I thought it was. Uh, and she said, Hannah, if you come in like this, if you keep coming like this, we can't do the work. And I heard her. And at that point, I knew I had a problem that was apparent to me. And the next day, I went to my first meeting. Uh, two blocks from where I lived, where that bougainvillea bush uh, backyard was. And I, and I walked into a Wednesday meeting, 12-step program, and I raised my hand. And it was, uh, my life was unmanageable and I was powerless. And my journey began. Yeah. How hard was uh, it at the beginning? It was excruciating. Uh like those early days were so hard, so hard to get my head to the pillow sober was, was everything, right? Like how, how, how does one, or how do, how like for myself, time becomes so different when you're not on meth or drinking, <laughs> like time, yeah. it's like, and waking up in the morning, first of all, just waking up in the morning, right? Uh, like the paralyzing depression, anxiety, like that terror was just gripping. So it was like every moment was was really unbearable. There was no pink cloud, uh, not for a long time. The one thing I did though is I got my head to the pillow sober. You know, 
I did use Adderall in the first three months because I was really worried about getting gaining weight. People kept saying, you're going to gain like the the freshman 10, the sobriety 10. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm like, no, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. And plus, I still, you know, at that point, I had two sugar daddies, a boyfriend and a lover. And I'm like, they're not going to want like some girl. And, you know, well, anyway, I, I need, you know. But I that's an interesting component to too, because, you know, Time takes time. Like, whatever about, you know, those relationships is making you feel some kind of way. When you're sober, yeah. eventually for you, that just doesn't work anymore. Um, no. And it's, and, but, but that's sobriety for you. Your life, you have to, you know, people say, you know, um, all you have to do is change everything. But like, yeah. it's damn near impossible to change everything overnight. And so yeah. this journey for you involves, you know, you go in, to, to the rooms with two sugar daddies and yeah. you start to kind of thaw out and clear up. Yeah. And what are the steps you go through? Not only to, you know, remove that kind of stuff from your life, but what are you doing to just to change? Because if you're at all like me, the first, the beginning is like you said, every moment is excruciating. Um, you know, and I, I did find a lot of hope and good energy in meetings and I, that made me feel good. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, this is the only other thing that can make me feel good. And I'd finally started to wrap my mind around that this other stuff was killing me. And I felt like I had a couple more tricks left up my sleeve as a human being, you know, to actually yeah. do the right thing and help people with like God given talents. You know, how did you, how did you ma manage all those, all that time early on? I mean, so for you, it was excruciating too. Yeah, early on for sure because it was yeah. it was everything. I've done it for twenty years in the last ten years all the time, and the only thing that could really for me treatment was the only thing that worked. I, it was the first time I tried. I'd been in and out of AA for for it took me ten years to get one year right. So I go to mm -hmm. treatment, and there's a wall between me and everything else, and that worked, you know. And and I started to realize, um, the more the more I bought into the program and to just saying what was really going on with me, telling the truth. Yeah. And that felt good, you know? And, yeah. and I saw people go before me where it worked for them. And I was like, I got, I got to do this. And I really was, you know, anything, it was, it was so fleeting. I don't know if it was like this for you, but it was so me, just me. You mentioned that first meeting you went to, there were six people there, right? Yeah. Now imagine these are six people. Like, what if they all had some shit come up that night? You know, what if you walk in and nobody's there? I mean, now it's bigger yeah. than us in a sense where you you probably you, or you were ready, but that just shows how fleeting sobriety is. Like, on the wrong day, if the wrong thing happens, I, I'm not here sitting here talking to you. I'm dead or I'm in prison. Yeah, that's right. That is, yeah. And those six people, I still have their cards. They gave me their cards that day. Uh, or the people that gave me their cards, they're in right behind me in a kitchen drawer and uh and i never called any of them but i it's the it's a testament to the importance of reaching out right and handing someone your number and being there being the hand whether or not they call you because those cards gave me hope and i came home and i looked at it and i remember looking at this one girl and she had red hair and said actress and i'm like that's an alcoholic and i can call her i didn't but it gave me something, you know, and I brought one of those cards to my uh, a wedding in that first month I was sober in Hawaii and I didn't drink 
I did use Adderall because I didn't want to eat the cake, but, <laughs> and I, I did, you know, I, I ended up telling my sponsor and that didn't go well. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I got a new sponsor. How were you? Yeah, let me get a new sponsor, right? How how were you with like, you know, obviously sex guys were a big part of your, your addiction and, yeah. and, and that murky past. How were you able to transition in, into dating again? And, and I mean, that's oh for me, God. that was so tough because I always, alcohol, um, you know, made me feel like I will, I felt very, I felt less than, you know, just from, from, from the beginning of the day till the end of the day, when it came to, there was things I was confident about in my life, but it certainly wasn't relationships with, with women. And so alcohol yeah. was my conduit to that. And so when I got sober, man, there was a lot of work to be done. You know, how, how did you, how did you get through oh all that God. and work through that? Wow. I, well, one, thank you for sharing that. And yeah, the, the, the dating and the love stuff, uh, the love stuff. Uh, one, I immediately, like, immediately stopped seeing uh, the lover. Mm-hmm. Like, I knew I just couldn't. And that was incredibly hard, but it equaled a drink to me. And I was serious enough about my sobriety. Like I wanted it more than anything. And I had that gift that talk about the gift of desperation. You know, I was 39 years old and I saw a glimmer of hope within that terror. And that particular person, uh, yeah, it just knew it would equal the drink. And that was really tough because that person kept contacting, like it was, yeah, but I just, you know. Were you in love with this person? And yeah, that, that shows how level. that shows how high the you said on some level, but that shows how high the stakes are. Uh, yeah, we were together for like yeah. two years. Yeah. yeah, and when you're really in it, I mean, you start to do things that you do not want to do, and, yeah. and, and and then you start to feel better. Yeah, as hard as that shit is, it's like, oh wow, like I followed suggestions, I put my sobriety first, and here I am. Maybe it's six months you know, or a year, but it's like, I'm so much better for having made those hard decisions. Yeah. And to sit on my hands and even have a sponsor when it came time to amends that maybe it was time to make amends to a him. And she even said, let's take a look at that. And I said, absolutely not. It would be for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Like, it, like I, you know, I, I drew the line at that. I was like, I just, I knew I told my sponsor, I'm not, I could use that as an excuse mm-hmm. and I'd be right back in. Yeah, you're you're very important because you can tell other people that you sponsor and that come behind you that, hey, look, here's what I did, and that's that's a huge thing about sobriety. It's like a, you know, and maybe the woman who's sponsoring the girl, who who's having the same experience, you know, your friend, let's say, is sponsoring this this particular person. It's like, well, I don't know, but 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 Hannah had a similar experience. Go talk to her. That's a beautiful thing about AA. Like, if you ask me about what you're going through, it's like I may not have the answer. But we can, I've been here long enough where I'm sure I know somebody or directly or somebody knows somebody that you can talk to that's been there. Yeah, that is, like we, what it talks about where we don't have to do anything alone, not anything. Like I remember when I had a, I had a sponsee, I still have, well, she's still with me eight years later and, you know, it was the time for her to do her fifth step and she was, you know, apprehensive about sharing certain things with me. And I just remember saying, listen, you know, it was about the, the sex industry. And I said, you're talking to someone that came in and my best thinking right before I got sober was to place an ad on Craigslist with my sister and be dominatrix foot fetish sisters. Like, 
I'm not going to judge you for some like. <laughs> yeah, we don't judge you. Yeah. Like, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so true, though. It's one of the only places you said when you went to that first meeting, following in that guy who was trouble. You said you knew there was a place to go where it was okay to to, to feel not okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what a like, how amazing is that, right? Like at like tonight, I have my home group, and it's you know it's been a rough time. Uh, I've been going through it lately, and I get to I get to share where I'm out there, right? And because other people do that, I know where to go for people exactly what you said that have it's an experience, you know, whether it's uh, an aging parent or these things that are really huge or small, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, I remember the first time, like I uh, went to get my uh, oil changed, you know, it was like a huge thing. Like, I remember calling someone and the person's like, okay, text me when you're there and we'll bookend it. I'm like, okay. And I pulled in and I said, I'm here. And he's like, good job. Good job, Hannah. You know, it's Jiffy Lube. And, and then like 30 minutes later, I'm like, I'm home. I didn't do it. And he's like, that's okay. We'll try again. <laughs> yeah, but that's what people don't understand that. But we do. I mean, it's it's. And those are things, I have a buddy who got sober when he was like 19 and he literally called a sponsor up once because his parents were like, you need to take the trash out. He's like, I don't know if that's God's will. I'm going to call my sponsor. And his parents were like, dude, take out the trash. But he literally called a sponsor. I mean, that's kind of, and you know what? The success rate for people like that is pretty high as far as are you willing to go to any lengths, you know? Yeah. That, that is exactly it. Like, are you willing to go to any lengths? And I feel very blessed that I've been carried through this whole time. And I know not everyone is. And, and I've also, like, I, I recognize that I've had the willingness. And I think it continues to come back to that, that gift of desperation and, and knowing the alternative and seeing, like you said, something in, uh, that, that, you know, something out there that I'm like, oh, it may be possible. Yes. Because my thinking got me here. And I think in terms of like the the dating and the sex and, um, we're not sex, we didn't say sex, but. Uh, well, that, you, can go, you can go ahead. I mean, you that, know, it's, all, it's all kind of part of that same intimidating monster that can, that can, yeah. that can honestly sometimes can keep you drunk or keep you using. Because it's like, how am I yeah. going to do that without this? That was really scary to me, uh, especially having followed someone into the program. So I, I ended up going mainly to gay meetings when I first got sober, and and actually to this day because they ended up being my my four people, yeah. right? And I just felt safe there, like I wasn't going to, you know, follow the wrong guy or whatever, and. Uh, yeah, so when I got sober, that that lover, I you know, was over, and they, I had, like I said, I had two sugar daddies, and I knew I couldn't sleep with them if I wasn't drinking. So it was a choice of, am I, is it taking me closer to a drink or farther away? And I, it was just so clear. Oh my God, there's no way without some champagne, I can, I can sleep with this person. And then, so I ended it with one of the men. And then the other one, 
we continued to see each other for a year, but we only ever had sex once when I was drunk and then never sex again. And he was an unusual man. Uh, but we would go to dinner and, you know, he gave me money every month and he took me to Trader Joe's and I got a, a sober job is what they said to do. And after a year of seeing him, no physical, no physical stuff. Uh, he was a very nice man, really. Like we go to plays together, and it was very strange. Uh, <laughs> you know, Peter company. Joe, yeah. Like yeah. He, I'm like, I, you know, and when you have a minimum wage job, or at least for me, and I quit my job at the law school, and you know, not the the one sugar daddy, and then this other sugar daddy because we weren't having sex. I mean, it was, you know, he, it was. When I'm talking like two hundred dollars a month. Yeah, but. But that was a lot, like <laughs> to, to supplement like my my dog store job and bringing me to Trader Joe's. But it did come. It was just it came. There was a, a Christmas. I was about a year so, sober, and he sat me down. And he said, "I'm in love with you, and I want you to move in with me. I'll buy you a car." Because at that point, I had like half a car. It was smashed in, and I'm probably similar in Texas. Like in LA, yeah. you just don't drive half a car. Yeah, no. When you've got you to have a car out there. You got to have a car yeah. and also you got to look like you yeah, yeah. have something going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd park it like two blocks from the gym so, <laughs> and walk. You know, like, ooh. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he said, and, and I'll pay for you to go back to school and get your MFA. And, and it was, you know, I had to make that choice then. And I, I got honest and I said, I'm, I don't have those feelings about you. And that ended. And that's really, really when the journey began in a whole other way, because the financial fear was so gripping. And how am I going to pay the rent? And people kept saying, like, just keep coming back. It's going to be okay. And I was carried. And I remember... You know, and, and I've had other women in that industry reach out to me and there's like a real turning point. I mean, for me, that was the turn, like a real turning point of, of leaning in or not. Because he would contact me uh, and say, how are you doing? I just want to send you some rent money. And that's kind of the way he was. He would drive all the way over from Sherman Oaks and like give a thousand dollars and he wouldn't even see me. He would just leave it on the, like. Oh, and, and, and you started know. to say no to this? Yeah. And he said, are you okay? Do you have rent? And like, I didn't. I didn't have rent and I wasn't okay. Or I didn't feel I was okay. And I said, yes, I'm doing well. Thank you. And, and the people in the program carried me and said, you're going to be okay. And. And then someone would call for me to take care of their dog. And that would be like a hundred extra dollars or, you know, get another job, three jobs, like whatever it took. When did you start to write again or, or to write period? Yeah, that was, that took time. Uh, that took time. I think I was, Maybe a year, maybe two, but I actually think it was a year. I had a sponsor, my finally got a sponsor because my picker was really off that first year. Uh, meaning I didn't know a sponsor should have a sponsor. Yeah. 
right? Like you come, or at least for me coming in, it was just like, what are these words? What are, what are you guys talking about? Like, but I kept coming back. And, um, with, uh, I'm just blanking. Oh, with the writing. Yeah. I asked my sponsor, you know, it was something I was talking to my sponsor about, and she said, start with five minutes a day. And so I began, you know, five minutes a day and it wasn't with no intention of writing a book or, or anything like that. Uh, and I, I began and one of the things is, you know, I think with growing, I had done ballet growing up and the discipline of like, I had that discipline of once I start something and also that, that alcoholic nature of like, yeah. once I start, like, no, like I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going <laughs> to write every day. No and matter that's it. Yeah. what. And that's your regimen. Yeah. Huh? You can't miss yeah. that or else you'll go nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, no matter what I wrote every single day for two years. And, uh, that's when I began that. And it was, uh, you know, the actual book was a very, very long process. Couple more things and I'll let you out of here. Where did you find the courage to, to write about such, you know, incredibly vulnerable stuff? Uh, I mean, yeah. Well, I think one being so used to saying it in uh, 12 step meetings, you know, I, I was, I didn't find that particularly hard to talk about what was going on. And I, and that is a testament to the tolerance and love in the program. Like I would come in and, you know, to the medium and be like, I'm going to go see my, you know, Iranian sugar daddy tonight. And, you know, and have a little dress on with a bow, you know, and yes, the guys, that you know, person, be like, yeah. Yeah. You know, guys would be like, you know, girl, just keep coming back. You, <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, and I, it was one thing I did is I just shared all the all the time, <laughs> like you know, whatever was going on. And so when I was writing, the courage. I don't know. I think that was just this is the fact of of what we do here, right? We share, share from the heart, and share what's really going on and I think the hardest part was knowing that my parents would read it or my at least my mother but uh, beyond that writing what's really going on like I had already been publishing in um, a recovery magazine or a thing called the, the fix at the time so I was already sharing parts of my story and uh and I remember they said do you want to put anonymous on this and I said no Wow, no, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah. And so you start yeah. to you start to write, and then you continue to develop your journey. Part of your journey now includes you you teach prisoners uh, to write. Yeah, actually, and that came from uh, my financial amends. I had a really long long amends. Yeah, you're like uh, me. You like to steal shit. You like to take stuff that wasn't yours. You right? oh, I, I I always say my part of my story is you know steal your shit, help you look for it. That's that's where I was. I mean, I spent a lot of time helping people try to find stuff that I knew they were never going to find. <laughs> you don't, you don't look the part. Oh I mean, my, trust me. Us, yeah, right? neither like, do you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're the ones who really got to be careful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I I mean, I had been stealing since I was six, so that list was really really long, and it came to a point uh, in the financial amends. 
where my sponsor, it was right towards the end of the financial amends. And she said, I think you've done enough of these at this point. <laughs> you know, it's the point is that with this last financial amends, I will think it's time to give back in a different way, not necessarily financial. So I started praying about it and I, I went to a, Angels on Wheels or one of those places to serve food and bring food to, I'm not much in the kitchen. So that didn't, I was like, you know, praying to my, you know, something bigger than myself, like put me where I can be of maximum service. And the same thing with the book. And right now, like you called right when I was praying that day, like, show me where's, what's the next step? Where, where do you want me to be? Right. And then I got your, your outreach and I was like there. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank right. you. Yeah. I mean, what you're doing yeah. is unbelievable. And I think it's, I, I just think, I think for any of us to have any kind of a platform and uh, to share our experience, strength and hope with, with people on any kind of stage or platform is huge because I know when I was going through it, I looked to people that could carry a message that were out there. And, and the fact that you're doing it and people can see you uh, and, and, and understand, like you said, I love the, your story about the card with the, the this is an actress and she's sober. You didn't yeah. call, you didn't call her. She said, what's up? She gave you a card. I mean, sometimes that's all it takes to kind of just yeah. continue to keep us sober for that day. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I, I mean, I can't, I can't count that time I'd run into someone in the program and they'd be like, you know, uh, like at the gym and I would, they, my eyes would be watering. And they're like, they would just kind of pat me, like not pat, pat me on the shoulder. But they understand. Know. They know what's going on. All right. What's yeah. the last thing? What's, what do you say to somebody that's in and out of the room and in and out of the rooms and they just can't, they can't get it. And they ask you like, what do I do? I mean, the one thing I did is I kept coming back. And Actually, I was asked this yesterday, and and I felt a little strange about saying it because uh, I know people are like, well, you do the steps, do this and do that, but without my my people holding my hand, without the fellowship, without like having a circle, like I have nothing. Right? It's through these people getting to hear their stories, having that community. Like to to the today, like I I want to be in the middle because I love the people surrounding me. So I would say, keep coming back, keep coming back, head to pillow sober, like hold on because it gets better. And people kept telling me that it would. And I'm like, and also like, you just never know. Like it was someone who had seven days. So anyone coming back, like it was the person that had seven days that helped me get to four days, not anyone else, right? So the power, the, the strength that an actual newcomer also has to carry the message. It was all I could hear. Did that so newcomer that, come that, up to you or say something or? What's that? Did the person with seven days say something to you when you had four days or? Yeah, I, uh, it was, I was three days and I just remember saw like a crying, just like, I, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to, like, it was a six o'clock meeting. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to make it through the night. It just, like, I just didn't, you know, it's, and uh, after the meeting, this young man came up to me and he had seven days and he gave me a hug. 
And he said, You're, you can do it. You can do it. And I got to four days. And it was that simple, but not so simple thing. Right? It wasn't like, go home and read the book. No, it was that hug. It was that person saying, you can do it. And uh, and I'm well aware that not, not everyone comes back. And um, what would you say to someone? Man, I've never had anybody turn it around on me like that. I, I, you got to have, you got to be, and it's almost hard for me to say this to somebody because yeah. I'm a people pleaser, but you got, you, right? You got to go to any lengths. That's how I got yeah. sober. I mean, I didn't want to go to treatment. I went to treatment. I didn't want to go to a recovery house. I went to a recovery mm-hmm. house. I didn't want to live with another sober dude in North Jersey for another two years. I did that. You know what I mean? I didn't want to go. To, I did all this shit that I didn't want to do. And yeah. I have an incredible, I have access to an incredible life today. Like you, some days I'm going through it and it sucks, but like, you know, for the most part, things are pretty awesome and it's nowhere near what it was before when I was doing whatever I wanted all the time. Like your best thinking got you. That's where my best thinking got me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that willing to go to any lengths, that, that, that is it. That is, is, is really it. There's so many examples of that where it's like, and to this day, like I met with my sponsor the other night and I told her, I said, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Some directions she gave me. And I'm like, and I'm part, trying to bargain with her. I said, can I just give that money to a homeless person instead? Like that just seems so much more. Yeah. Know, and she's like, no. And I said, that's ridiculous. Like <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you told her. Yeah, exactly. I still haven't done it, but I will because it's trust in my head. Me, I, got, I got a bunch of those on the wall, you know, uh, or stick on snow on the roof. All right, look, I'm going to let you get back to your life. I can't thank you enough. The book is called Strip. I'll put it in the show notes. Put, you're on Facebook, and I know you just cranked up your Instagram, so we'll drop that in there too. I heard you mention that to somebody. Pete, thank you so much. Thank you for all you bring. Uh, I mean, you're, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and I, and I like your whole setup here. For people who can't see it, it's tight. We got the plants, you know. I knew you'd like that. Are yeah. they real? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, all right. thank you so much, Anna. Thanks so much for listening to the Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, and of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com, and of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts: iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Network production. 